Good morning, everybody. Uh, you're here with your host, Joshua King, and Dr. Cameron Surrey, Senior Chaplain of the Tertiary Catholic, Auckland Catholic Tertiary Chaplaincy. I'm getting better at saying that phrase. It's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> and, uh, you're the, cool, the cool kids call it ACTC. ACTC. Not ACDC. That's different. <laughs> ADDC? Have you heard that one? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a good Australian uh, hilarious radio thing. Look it up, ADDC. Um, yeah, and you're, you're listening to Discerning Catholicism. Yeah. And this is where we discuss the differences between Protestantism, uh, mainline, uh, the sort of nominal mainline Protestants, the, the range of them and their differences with Catholicism, and look at what would a Protestant need to uh, consider in order to become a Catholic. I myself am not a Catholic at the moment, and, but I'm interested in discerning it. And I have a game plan and we're going to tackle it, hopefully during, throughout the duration of this pod, these podcasts. You might be getting sick of that introduction. We'll see if I can shorten it as we move on. But for now, you're stuck with it. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what we didn't quite get to yesterday, which is the role of feelings uh, in discerning where to go in your life, what, what to make sense of. Um, we, are feelings a legitimate part of human experience, a legitimate part of discernment and reasoning? Uh, to what extent are we getting carried away? And to what extent is it essential and without it, we really kind of are truly lost. So uh, the, the comparison, I always like to compare everything that I do in my life with the worst possible, um, worst possible version of it. So with respect to this whole podcast and my journey towards Catholicism, you know, I might be asking myself, am I getting carried away by a cult here? Am I, or the equivalent of, am I being carried away by my emotions? To what extent am I emotionally driving towards this uh, rather than reason rationally or reasonably, and how do those mesh together? Uh, so I think it's an interesting topic. And then hopefully we might also just mention, hopefully we'll get to the point of talking about who am I to be even questioning all of this? Uh, I, I don't have an extensive formal education. There are a, a decent number of uh, areas of Protestant variation and perspective that I am un, unaware of. And all I bring to the table really is my experience. And I'm kind of relying on Dr. Cameron Sari to be the encyclopedia of information on the Catholic side, which is an, an theological uh, engager, I guess, or that he brings the meat, hopefully. Although, I guess, in your defense, you've, enga you've engaged with a lot of other Catholics before you even met me. And so um, I don't feel that pressure of... Having to bring you know, having the full weight of having to represent all of Catholicism. No, and so and the thing is, it really is just a conversation. Uh, hopefully, we can talk about who are any of us to engage in these conversations. And the goal of this podcast will be to hopefully give some confidence and clarity around why we should be engaging. So, uh, feelings. Feelings. Isn't that a song on Shrek or something? It's an actual song. It is a song. I think yeah. Donkey was singing it. Yeah. I don't know. But I always just think of that. <laughs> but yeah, feelings. So what I guess we'll start with uh, the cult thing. You know, I, I, I'm quite aware that many of my community, family, friends, they see me hanging out at the chaplaincy as a result of ministry on campus, doing apologetics work, working in the pro-life club, uh, where the mixing of Protestants and Catholics tends to occur the most. And finding myself in a place which is useful for work and enjoying and loving the theological conversations. Hmm. 
but to everyone on the outside who doesn't really know much about Catholicism and kind of sees it as a whole bunch of problems and sees me hanging out with lots of Catholics, there is this, ah, oh, is he just, he, he, he likes hanging out with them. He's made some friends. Is he being drawn away? Mm. And the, the same sort of thing, we've, we've seen a number of cults actually turn up on the campus. And what the University of Auckland campus has uh, created is this warning about love being love-bombed. Are you being love-bombed? Which is where people will come in and then just be super nice to you and give you community and give you all these things that we actually need in, in, in our lives and often are starved of mm. in, in our lives because we don't, we don't have, I guess, a driving force to, to keep us building up the, the healthy relational aspects of community. Um, but within a cult, that's sort of the way that they win people. They, yeah, it's, a, it's a manipulative um, ploy. Yeah, and so they have this driver to m ensure that the relational uh, aspects of the community are very, very, very strong because that's how they keep you from asking questions. It's how they keep you engaged in the conversations of brainwashing, so to speak, or the things that they want you to constantly reflect on and avoid the things that, think that they don't want you to reflect mm. on. So they do love bomb people on the campus and people really do get sucked in. And we've seen a number of people get pulled into these cults uh, Jesus star, superstar, or something, some weird uh, name. There's a whole bunch of range of them. They all sort of stem from the uh, Unification Church and Reverend Moon, who was this Korean guy. who's apparently the third coming, uh, second coming, third coming. Who knows? Mm. Um, so, you know, how how is it? Do, do people when I'm, when I'm coming to this place and I'm engaging in conversations and I'm enjoying the community and I talk about things like I just see so much fruit from this community, I see it as a really good thing and, and love is a good thing and relationship is a good thing, it's, it would be easy for all of my friends to just think, ah, oh, he's being carried away by these emotional factors mm. and he's, he's not thinking clearly. He's not... Even though they don't engage with me in a conversation, I mean, usually when people get pulled away by cults, it'll be like, dude, you need to get alongside that guy and, and really talk to him and engage with him. Mm. But for some reason, when it comes to Catholicism, a lot of my friends who know I'm hanging out with, these guys, with you guys and, and talking about this stuff, and even showing an affinity for many of the concepts, they'll ask me questions, but they, it doesn't, I don't get that reaction of concern from them that I would actually expect if they really thought Catholicism was wrong. So... That's my background. I'm kind of just rambling at this point. Okay, no, but that's interesting, though. It, but it, I think I find it very interesting. And it's what raises this whole subject, really. It's the background of, of why I want to talk about the role of feelings and mm. to what degree are they, are they good in, in discerning truth and discerning God's ways and, and, and where we should go in life. It seems, uh, just as you're speaking, a thought that comes to mind about the cult and the manipulative community is that... It tends to have a door in, but not really a door out. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's open, but only in one direction. So it's actually very closed once you get in. And then perhaps you're discouraged from interaction with your old friends or your family or your other connections that you had. And so it becomes this, this um, suffocating monoculture in the end. So that would be one of the marks of a cult, perhaps. Hmm. And so, um, so to avoid falling into that trap, you know, you have you have a door in and a door out, and maybe windows as well. So you kind of and maybe windows as well. <laughs> just to push the analogy. escape points. <laughs> but but I guess um, 
doors as in, you know, you encourage people in, but you also, you, you don't discourage them from, um, from their, their, their existing relationships yeah. that like, are outside. It's not like that scene from Lord of the Rings where Sauron's just slamming the door in Gandalf's face and he's like, oh, I can't, I can't escape. Oh, yeah, Saruman. Yeah. Saruman, sorry. Yeah, Sauron, yeah. my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sure. So there's, there's something that where in the end you're, you're being sucked in and trapped. Um, so I guess a healthy, healthy community allows flow in both directions. And so the, the analogy of a room is good because if, if you don't open the doors and windows of a room, it gets stuffy and it mm. actually becomes a place of death. <laughs> Even though it may have seemed like a really cozy shelter, yeah, um, it c can turn from that into into um, a stuffy, stinky, horrible place um, that that just stops you from from acting. One of the one of the things that I've I feel is the defining factor, and I, and it could be just from this perspective. It is the defining factor from this angle. But um, it really does seem to uh, answer a lot of things, and that is the inability to ask questions. I feel like that's the sign of cult-like tendency. I think all humans have the capacity or tendency to move towards, or the, perhaps the temptation to move towards uh, stifling questions that make us uncomfortable. And that's the starting point and the essence of cults. And you can see it in businesses when they get stuck in a certain way of doing things. And if you ask questions, you just get slammed by everyone or the boss mm. or all these sorts of things. Yep. Uh, it's very cult-like. And the reason why cults, I think, are so manipulative is because their ideas are so ridiculous <laughs> that to almost ask anything is like, don't even begin to think about that because once you start, it'll be really obvious how yeah. ridiculous their ideas are. And so the extent to which they have to go to to manipulate you into not asking questions is... is is very, very extensive, and that's mm. what sets these particular groups up as these icons of cults. Um, unfortunately, the secular community sees all religion as essentially that thing. It's blind faith, and once you, and sort of emotional manipulation. Mm. And that's really terrible because, you know, there's this, when religion and cult become the same word, it's, it's, it's you're in big trouble in society, uh, particularly if you are a Christian. Sure. But um, yeah, I think I, I've always found that like w if you can't ask questions about the things that are being talked to about talk, told you, then it's a massive warning sign. Mm. And I would say run. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, because it means maybe that there is a um, a very um, narrow system that's that's being used. Like this is the way we do things, or this is the way we think. Yeah. This is our model of the way the world is, or whatever. And so it's it's very definable, which makes it powerful. Mm. But then it's very limited, and it doesn't leave any room for for movement or for diversity. And as you say, then because it's actually quite it's actually quite poor. There's this kind of oh, don't allow anyone to question it because the moment you do, it'll be like the emperor's clothes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it'll be, it become clear that yeah. we're, we're, we're worshipping this stupid idol. And the thing, the thing with the emperor's clothes, I'm not sure if this is in the story, but I suspect that the first person to question the nakedness of the emperor probably got his head cut off. And it took, like, actually, in, in real life, it would have taken about five people and a crowd to listen to the five leaders mm. laughing at the emperor before everyone joined in and was like, actually... Well, in the story, it's a little boy. 
Yeah. And, and that's what's beautiful about it, because the boy is not being sort of corrupted by the sort of groupthink. Yeah. And so it's all the adults who are capable of shutting their brains down <laughs> and going along with this stupidity. The boy just sees what he sees, and he just res responds to it. Yeah. And, and he thinks it's ridiculous. But um, there's another <laughs> dynamic at play, and that um, there's a whole lot, and this is probably the majority, are borderline people. They can flip from one to the mm, other. Mm. And so There's a lot of those. <laughs> if someone loudly proclaims, he's got no clothes on, then, other, then a few other people get the courage to go, yeah. And then more and more people just... And, and so you can get this, this huge shift from one pole to the other yeah. that occurs you know, within just moments. Yeah. Because there's already the potential for it in the crowd. It's just like... It's, it's like the avalanche. It just needs a little bit of a, um, a start and then, and then, you know, all this... Um, and that, I mean, that's kind of... Given the whole, like, recent abortion uh, second reading last night, apparently going to try and push the third reading today or tomorrow, which right. is insane how yeah, fast they're pushing yeah, that through. Yeah, it's really insane. And the degree to which they didn't go through the select committee mm -hmm. process normally like they do with everything else. I mean, the government's pushing this conversation so fast... And, I mean, that's just a, a dead giveaway that they're really not interested in ha letting the country discuss it because there is something uh, that the, the country doesn't want this bill, that all the studies show that what the bill contains is opposed. But the, 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 with politics, you've got that same effect of the, there's such a minority of people who actually vote, but the people who vote are the loud voices. Mm. They're the influencers. And everyone else who doesn't vote and seem to be like the, the, the flip, the, more, the, the sort of um, flipping majority uh, who are the culture. And so there's like this battle going on of winning the culture. Mm. Um, even though the majority who don't vote technically don't have a say on paper, they have a say in the sense that the ones who are, have, do have loud voices are influenced massively by that majority. Mm. Uh, and so the, the loud voices really need to be persuasive and not just rally call. Because rally calling just affects those whom are voting. It doesn't affect the majority who actually determine the, where the votes go. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I, I do feel like there's a lack of persuasion, even amongst many people who are active in politics. There just seems to be a whole bunch of, like, conclusion shouting mm -hmm. and not um, really getting at the core of what's on people's minds, the, the foundations of why people won't flip. Sure. Uh, but that's just me having a bit of a political sad. <laughs> so, well, I'm sure we can kind of start to steer this back to your original question, which is about the role of feelings mm. um, in, in, I guess, when you're exploring something uh, related to truth, right? Mm. Because feelings, for example, play a big role in the abortion debate. And um, Although I, I did hear a quote uh, recently. It said something about if you really... Um, I can't remember the exact words. It was something like, if you really are passionate about something, then um, have a dispassionate debate about it. So a dispassionate debate, um, so that you can get to the truth about it, shows that you're actually, that you really, really care um, about the thing. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're just uh, engaging in a highly emotive um, screaming match, then you're probably more con more concerned about just being right rather than about the actual issue at hand. Mm. So in a, in a funny way, the dispassionate discussion about the issue 
shows an underlying concern, a real care, a real, like, you have true emotions, uh, appropriate emotions towards this, this issue. Yeah, I, I do kind of hear where you're coming from. I do think that you've got, yeah, I mean, we could go into this for, this is not a political podcast, but there is... Um, but I mean in relation to, even to yeah. your search of Catholicism. Yeah, it's sort of, so... It seems that if, I mean, it's obvious that if you are letting your emotions get, let you get carried away with the words that you're using. So unless your words have substance, which is kind of the dispassionate side of the conversation, mm. then you're just, you're just rallying on your emotions. You're no longer seeking with the totality of yourself. And I think that there, with emotions, um, and this is, I often say this to atheists because atheists don't really pick this up, and it's a really great, fun way direction of, of pulling them pulling the rug from underneath them and that's just to say that you think truth is so important you think that like um, articulation and argumentation is like the the be all and end all but isn't the only reason you care about those concepts in your understanding of whatever they are because you feel that they're important so and then when you look at science isn't it just everyone observing things and then saying, oh, I feel like this is the right answer. And then when you get enough of a consensus, then they become facts. And it's kind of like even the pursuit of truth and the desire to be oriented towards truth is a value in itself. And those who act like it's independent, I don't think, know themselves. Mm. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah so um, maybe there's a connection between goodness and truth because goodness you'd more associate with being attracted and maybe with um with emotion so like when there's something good you kind of desire it brings you joy or mm, the desire. something bad um you you maybe fear it or it makes you angry or whatever so there's emotion involved um and that you can't separate goodness from truth totally so when you when when you're seeing something true you're also perceiving that it's good it's good and and so the, the emotions are getting um, engaged. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I think even people often say, or those who hate truth, but, and they talk about these people as if like, you know, they're evil and it's like they're rejecting it even though it's clear. But I really, I, I genuinely feel like, no, that, that person's blinded to that truth. You, you, for you, it's very obvious. Mm. And so there's the emotional attachment as you just mentioned. But for the person who rejects it, there's a whole series of, of underlying premises and, and foundations that really make that truth stand out and, and mm. become clear that they have blinded themselves to. And so when you just state the conclusion, to them, it sounds like a cult guy coming out and being like, I have the truth. Mm. And, and they're just like, you're, you're a mental case in their mind. Mm. Uh, and that's, this is why that whole process of un, really trying to understand people is so essential because you'll get to the core really fast. Yep. And then it's like, no other conversation is really worth having apart from that core conversation. Mm. And this is what I don't like about politics is when all of the voters are just running around yelling their truth and their truth. And in a sense, even though I don't think truth is really relative, there is kind of a relativity about it in that they're, they're completely talking past each other because they're not really asking the right questions or mm. genuinely trying to persuade the other. Yeah. So, yeah. S steering it back to... to uh Catholic Protestant um, dynamics. Mm. I wonder if, um, and the good goodness and truth thing. So at first glance, a lot of Catholic stuff to a Protestant just looks bad. You know, like 
um, oh, you, you pray the rosary, like, you know, you, you put Mary on a pedestal, you have this Pope guy um, who seems to dictate to you what to believe, um, you... Um, you pray you, to saints and that yeah, should only be to God. This idolatry towards a piece of bread and, you know, so there's all this stuff <laughs> and so it's clear, it's, it, it just seems on the face of it bad. Yeah. And so, well, it's assumed, well, it's obviously not true because it's bad, right? And, um, and the badness seems to speak more directly maybe than the falsity of it. It's like, it's first of all experienced or seen as something bad and then, well, it's clearly false as well. But the badness sort of um, hits you harder because it, because it does stir the emotions. It mm. does stir an emotional response. And then maybe people with this view see you um, going into this Catholic place where apparently all this stuff goes on. <laughs> and they're like, oh, maybe you've been somehow seduced into thinking the bad stuff is actually good and, um, and you've been deceived. Um, yeah, and when I say stuff like, actually what you just said is not true. You don't know what you're talking about. They're like, oh, there's the sign. He's been seduced into thinking yeah. it's acceptable. Yeah. If he can't see that that's bad, then I, I can't help him. That's yeah. always the line, eh? Mm. If you can't see how this is the case, then there's nothing. There's no helping you. That's the, that's the shutting the conversation down. Right. And that's really unloving, I think. In, in the end, it's really, if you don't willing to actually sit down with someone and understand them, then you don't really care about them. You just care about them conforming to your way of things. And I think that that sucks. And that's really what the cults do. Um, but, you know, we all can be like a cult at some time, some point. Mm. I do think that, for me, it seems, it's, it really does seem to be the case that everything comes down to experience. And if you don't acknowledge the totality of your experience as a human being when you approach any subject, then you're just deceiving yourself. And this happens on every side. You can be an intellectual person who, who blinds himself to the emotions. You're going to be deceived just as much as the one who blinds himself to the truth, sure. but, but remains only on what they desire, only on what feels good, right? Mm. But we really need to be coming at the subject with both of these things, with everything. And it's, it really is a moral issue. It's like, are you being, are you holding yourself to account for the, are you taking account of all the things that you know? And are you turning a blind eye to things that may point to an opposite conclusion than the one that you want to be the case? Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether that blind eye is to feelings or whether that blind eye is to true intellectual details. Um, I think they're actually not separated. I think with every intellectual detail, there is an emotional feeling associated. Yeah. And with every emotional feeling or desire you have, there is intellectual structure around that thing. Sure. And so to just pretend that they're separated, I think is also a huge issue because we don't actually experience any one of these things apart from the other things. Such, so like, and I'm not just talking about you can, you can add physical experience into that. You can add the physical phenomena of the universe. So you have your desires or feelings in moral realm. You have your intellectual, rational, reason realm. And then you have like the physical realm. And all three of these, they're kind of distinct, but not one of them can be described apart from the other two. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I wonder if the best way of uniting them is actually to uh, be willing to engage with different people. Right, because yeah. you engage with people who represent different perspectives on things, and so they don't just bring a, uh, a list of truth claims, 
um, but this truth is, um, comes in the context of a person who's looking back at you and who is in many ways good. And so, you know, often we, when, you, when you start talking to a person maybe whose views you totally oppose, but yeah. you're actually face to face with them, you really, you, you, often your, your heart warms to them a bit. Yeah. And because of that... <laughs> oh no, but they're the enemy! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and then you become even, it's like you can see, you can see where they're coming from more, and mm. you can see their view in a different light, and you're like, so you still might not agree with it, but you're like, ah, oh, I can see why that view is, is attractive. I can see why someone might adopt that view. And so at least you can give their view a fair hearing instead of just being able to discount it from a distance like you can when it's just reading it in a book mm. or, or, or even worse, reading a critique of it from your own perspective, yeah. um, you know, which, is, which doesn't help you at all to see the other side. And, and for those people who are afraid to do that, because it is scary to sit with someone and to become close, attached to somebody who's so deluded. But I, I would just because there's a fear of like, am I going to be corrupted? Yeah. You know, am I sitting like they're not a demon, but you, you, you're like, do I sit amongst demons and converse with them? You know, am I strong enough to deal with that? Like, yeah. there's a whole range of reasonable fears, but at the yes. same time, I guess I would just encourage the, the 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 pain and sadness you feel of being attached to someone who's deceived. You're not alone in that. Like God must feel like that all the time, mm. and I think. You know, we can look to Christ in his suffering and look to, when we pray that we desire to have a heart like God and that our heart would break like God's heart breaks, I think this is possibly one of the truest forms of that. And if you remain true to God, you'll be able to bear through it. And I think there's a good proverb that says, those, he who, where there is no counsel, the people will definitely fall. But where there is an abundance of counselors, you, there is safety. Yeah, and, and I guess that means that, yeah, so you, you might sit with the person from the opposite point of view as you, but, um, but you actually make a kind of a pact that I, part of I'm not going to be just simply uh, easily deceived means that I'm going to go back and talk to somebody else afterwards, mm. maybe from my own camp, and then, and then I'm going to go back out again, and I'm going to come back home again, and I'm going to go mm. back and forth so that I'm not, um, I'm not just led cheaply away mm. um, in, in some crazy direction. It's quite interesting, the closeness thing too. I've seen, I've heard this really interesting detail and ever since I heard it, I've, I've seen it constantly. And it's if you're disagreeing with someone or you're having a fight with somebody, sit closer to them. Be as close to them as you can be. Right. Because when you start feeling angry with someone or frustrated or, or, or that you feel opposed to them, you, you're physically, and you do it subconsciously, you distance yourself from them, even within the room. You, you sit back, you move slightly away, you move your chair back, you're, 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 you're separating yourself from that person. And act, what it does is it requires you to then speak louder in order for them to hear you. Mm. And then you can start shouting, because when you're shouting at a 10 meter distance, it doesn't seem as bad as if you're shouting in their face at like yeah. one meter distance. And so by moving closer to them, it forces you to, to speak quieter and it forces you to really um, approach them with a gentler, kinder, loving uh, tone. And, and, and even the words and the sentences you use change. And, and, and you actually feel the discomfort. Like when you're feeling frustrated with someone, sitting closer to them makes you feel more uncomfortable. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's a very effective way of causing more vulnerable exploration. 
If you move closer and they move further away, should you chase them? <laughs> yeah, but they will. They will. That's the thing. But I think if you move closer and you immediately start talking quieter, there's a better yeah. chance that they will move. They won't run away. Yeah, that's true. And and it's it's yeah, it's the way it is. And if they keep running away, there comes a point where you have where you can't do anything. And so mm. that's the way it is. But yeah, like I said, like we've been saying throughout the whole thing, ask good questions, and um, and explore. And and this sort of process of discussing with multiple people and we have to remember that are all of us made in the image of God were we made in the image of God and does do people love does God love us like does God want us to all come to salvation as the scripture says God loves all and wants them all to come to a knowledge of himself and salvation mm. do you really believe that and are we all potential children of God or are we all children of God or what what how does God see everyone, even the worst of us who are still alive? And do you have a heart for the, to, to save that person? And if you do, you will try to understand them. You will ask questions with them. And you will not blind yourself so that you can help them to stop blinding themselves. Mm. But it's funny, like asking questions is like basically putting yourself in the learner spot. And people love to talk about themselves. So if you ask questions, they're going to love to tell you things, usually. But then asking questions is the most powerful way to undermine where the pe people are blinding themselves as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's why I said it's the most, I think it's the most powerful way of persuading. Yeah, it's, it's inviting them to, it's asking them to step out into the light rather than sort of trying to push them out there. Yeah. Well, I think that concludes the podcast. Um, perhaps that answers a little bit about why each of us uh, should engage in topics that we think, who are we to engage in? Because either someone else is going to learn by your questions or we're mm. going to learn. And I really do think that the ignorant in the world, the ones who have lower IQs, who can't see things properly, really are a blessing and actually uncover so much more than the ones who are super intelligent. Because they're the ones who are like the child, who just see things and don't get it and ask questions. Um, and usually the intelligent in the world are the ones who get angry and frustrated and, and attack others because they're unable to break down their own perspectives and actually articulate it mm. in a way that's receivable yeah. for the simple. Um, and so God uses everybody. So don't be afraid to engage and to search and explore. Anyway, uh, that's all for today. And thanks for listening, everybody. And I hope you have a blessed day. God bless. <laughs>